Hey, everyone, I want to invite you to a writing event that is coming up, a somewhat unknown writing event. Um, you know, at NaNoWriMo, we're so well known for National Novel Writing Month that happens every uh, November that sometimes people don't know that we do writing events throughout the year. And one special event is Camp NaNoWriMo. We have sessions of it in April and July. And it's, it's just like NaNoWriMo, except it's a more casual version of NaNoWriMo. We believe that a, that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife, and a goal and a deadline is at the heart of Camp NaNoWriMo, except you don't have to write 50,000 words of a novel. You can come on our site, and if you want to write 10,000 words in the month of April, uh, you can set a goal of 10,000 words. If you want to write a poem a day or a piece of flash fiction a day, you can do that for Camp NaNoWriMo. There's just many different ways you can participate, but the core of NaNoWriMo is there. You know, we provide inspiration and motivation and resources and most importantly, a community of writers to help galvanize you. So our next session of Camp NaNoWriMo is happening in April. So please sign up for it and enjoy writing whatever you want to write. Hello, dear writers and listeners, writer listeners. Welcome to this week's episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner. I'm joined as I am every single week, thankfully, by my trusty co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, we are in for a treat today because we have Gish Jen joining us on the show. I know you're a fan of her work. Yeah, it's such an honor and a treat to to have someone who I've I've been reading her short stories in places like Best American Short Stories and The New Yorker since I really decided to become a writer decades ago. So she's been with me for a long time. It's going to be amazing to talk to her. I love that. And it just makes it even more exciting when we get to have guests like that who we've been following for a long, long, long time. And I remember that certainly felt like the case for me with people like Jane Smiley and Mary Carr and others. And one of the harder things about having someone as a guest who's more prolific, like Gish is, uh, is that there are just like a, so many different directions to go when it comes to theme, because Gish is a gifted story writer, as you said, um, and we're bringing her on today to talk about her latest collection, which is called Thank You, Mr. Nixon. But she's also a novelist, um, and this latest collection is her ninth book. So she's a bit of a fixture, and I, too, feel very honored that she's with us uh, on the show today. But coming back to choosing a theme, sometimes it's just obvious, right? Like it unearths itself. And then sometimes we really have to mine for them. And as is the case with Gish, there are just so many gems. Uh, so of course, we'll talk about story and craft and other things that she's well known for. But I got to thinking about generational tensions when I was reading this collection. I thought that that was like very much at the core of her work. Uh, and a lot of Gish's work uh, does center around generational tensions and other kinds of tensions because she's the daughter of immigrants. And so she lives these tensions every single day. And then I watched an interview in which she said that the gift of growing up bicultural is that you're in this constant state of observing the two sides of things. Uh, she said, your job was to listen to everyone and figure out what was going on. And you can see that in, you know, well, two things. I mean, you can see it in her writing, but you can also see in how that would lend itself to her becoming a writer, of course. Uh, and then in Gish's case, and I think in the case of a lot of immigrant children, writing is not something that the parents are necessarily approving of. And so Gish 
dropped out of Stanford. And following that, she and her mother didn't speak for an entire year, <laughs> which is a wild story. So there's really good fuel for tensions in Gish's own background. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's the case for all of us, but I think it can play out more dramatically oftentimes for kids of immigrants because it's cultural tensions, it's generational tensions and other tensions to unpack as well. So I'm curious, Grant, uh, when you think about tensions for yourself. You know, I, again, like I was drawn to the generational tensions in this book. It's interesting when we get to the interview, that's not so much of the focus that Gish particularly has. Uh, but where do you feel the most tension? I mean, you and I are both solidly Gen X. So if you were to write a story today about generational tension, would you gravitate toward the tension with boomers or would you gravitate more toward the tension with millennials? Ah, good question. Uh, I can go on for hours, I think. But, um, <laughs> on either one. <laughs> yeah, on either one. Uh, but you know what's funny is that I've, I've never really felt much generational tension with boomers. And there was obviously more of a tension with the generation before them, my parents' generation, the greatest generation, because they, you know, they just experienced such a different world with the Depression and, and World War II. And they grew up with such yokes of conventions that I didn't have. But I didn't feel much tension with them either, you know, beyond just the differences between us, because they were were so much older and their world was just so markedly different, you know? So if I was going to write a story about generational differences, I'd place it probably with the current generation gap, meaning millennials and Gen Z uh, in one camp and all who are older in the other. And I really see it more as two different groupings than four or five. And that's because all of us who are older share a lot of common reference points and experiences. And I think what's really driving this current generational gap uh, more than anything is our relationship to technology and how technology has changed our lens upon life. And in fact, I read that the major thing defining differences between Gen Z and millennials is that Gen Z uh, was born with the iPhone literally at their fingertips. You know, they've never known a world without the iPhone. So it's it's changed the way they carry on friendships, the way they date, and the way they even eat, you know, even more so than millennials who in some ways have more in common with Gen Z, or Gen X in some ways. So I think anytime one X it's a generational tension or gap, you have to also try to remember what you were like when you were younger, mm-hmm. because that's what I'm constantly <laughs> trying to do, because it is younger people's duty to be rebellious and brash and even arrogant, to, you know, to challenge the status quo. And it's it's always jarring to somehow not be the ones leading the culture. But then that's one benefit of being Gen X. We were always on the margins, always overlooked, and we generally liked that characteristic and sought it out, which I always liked, especially as a writer. I thought it was a good place to be. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. You just clicked into place something really profound about my personality. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, I also feel like I have an easier rapport or maybe like a gravitational pull toward the older generation. I think that's always been true. I, I kind of thought, well, it's I'm an old soul or it's how I've been raised. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're saying is true. Like we've kind of been in the uh, side shadows of, of our boomer parents. You know, in my case, my parents are older boomers. But, you know, my friend group has skewed older and I work with older women and always have. And I've been close to my mom and her friends. So, you know, it's just I think sometimes that's part of it as well. But then, you know, that changed when I gave myself the role of publisher of She Writes because now I'm the oldest of my team, you know. Mm. And so all that affinity has really just made it easier to feel a bit more in lockstep with boomers in a way that I struggle a little more with the younger generation. So I would say if I were to explore story tensions, it would probably be with the millennials. Um, I totally 
echo everything that you just say. I mean, I think there is that digital divide, which is a huge deal. I'm just thinking like I got my first email address when I was 18 and didn't get my first phone until I was like 25. So you have to just like consider the vast worldview impacts as a result of that. And then the tensions, of course, just makes me think like there are technology tensions, so many tensions in fiction. Uh, and so clearly, you know, this is the topic. Like that's the long way of saying <laughs> that Gish's topic is mining these tensions because she does it so beautifully. It's fascinating that um, it used to be big world events like wars that marked different generation, but now it's one minute videos on TikTok. And Gish's story collection, thank you, Mr. Nixon, is such an interesting collection if we look at it through the lens of generational tensions, because Gish took this 50-year period of time from Nixon's, you know, very stage-managed 1972 visit to Mao Zedong's China to the present through COVID. And you see that the younger generation believes they can have a different life or the older generation can be more resigned to things just being the way they are and the lack of conviction that anything can change. She also writes characters who end up in the U.S. and they, they lose their Chinese culture, their language, and there's a lot of tension there between expectations and duty that the older generation imposes on the younger generation. And the younger generation, of course, feels duty-bound, but also resentful at times. In one of the stories, uh, Amaryllis, the protagonist, is, is half Chinese, doesn't speak the language at all, and is tasked with checking in on her friend's aging Chinese grandfather for a few months while the friend goes on a long trip to Africa. And here, Amaryllis becomes the dutiful granddaughter to a man who's not her own grandfather, and we see this pull of family and of tradition that she's longed for but doesn't feel connected to from her own mother. And it's it's such an interesting study in tradition, culture, and heritage lost as we become more multicultural, which, of course, what happen, is what happens when uh, children of immigrants grow up and marry outside of their culture. And then cultures dilute and tensions invariably flare with different perspectives and experiences. I'm curious, Brooke, what was your favorite story in this collection? Yeah, you know, I saw Gish in an interview say that her favorite was Detective Dog. And I saw that when I was like halfway through with the collection. So then I couldn't wait to get to the end because it's the last story in the collection. And I totally agree with her. I mean, it has stayed with me long after I read the book. It's a beautifully constructed story with a surprise that builds to the end. Super well crafted. And also it was uniquely written for this collection kind of late in the game. But still she manages to link it because the story still centers on one of the families that Gish focuses on for this collection. So I just found it all very skilled and highly recommend that people get the book, of course, but particularly read this story. I mean, it's it's so brilliant. It's very masterful. Uh, and Grant, you write stories yourself and you're an avid reader of stories. So I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are about the difficulty in executing linked stories. Because in the case of Thank You, Mr. Nixon, Gish traces a few different families across 50 years. Uh, she writes about the diaspora, basically those who go to the States, to Italy, to Hong Kong. And then there are 11 stories in this collection, and they could read independently or as standalones. But then when they're read together, they're clearly connected. So you as a reader have this experience that's more like a sustained narrative novel, but it's both. Like, it could be either or. And I'm wondering, is that a common way of executing a short story collection, do you think? Because um, my feeling is that, uh, like I said, I mean, the Gish obviously is a very masterful storyteller, but she clearly put this thing together quite intentionally. And then she's talked about on other interviews, the fact that she wrote Detective Dog to kind of punctuate this 50 year journey. 
Hmm. Yeah, I feel like the answer is both. And it's a mysterious answer in a way. Um, you know, we had Jean Chen Ho on Right Minded a year or so ago, and she talked about how she wrote the stories in her collection individually. But then when they were gathered together in a collection, Fiona and Jane, they spoke to each other in a way that made the collection feel novelistic. And I think you could say the same about one of the original linked collections, Winesburg, Ohio, written by Sherwood Anderson back in the 1920s. And and I'm not sure if Jennifer Egan ever gave a straight answer on if A Visit from the Goon Squad was a novel or a collection <laughs> of stories. I thought it was a really interesting reading experience because um, I remember I initially read it as a collection of short stories. And then about halfway through it, I was like, oh, no, no, this this is a novel. And it, it kind of changed things a little bit. And it kind of didn't matter at the same time. And so my guess is that Gish was conscious of doing both at the same time, mm-hmm. which is an interesting way to write, I think. Yeah, and also just building on these characters that she's lived with for many years. You know, I know Amaryllis, for instance, I I think that was originally published back in 2014. So you know, just to have these collection, these these pieces at your fingertips, you know, that you then uh, turn into a collection is just a fascinating exercise. Uh, and one of the gifts of short stories as a reader is that you can just dip into them. You know, you can just finish a single story quite quickly as opposed to a novel that invariably requires you to read chronologically and, you know, to give more time and attention. And what I most like about Gish's storytelling is the many layers there's so much underneath what she's writing. And one of the interviews I watched, uh, she was talking about how it's a character trait of the Chinese to not say what they mean. <laughs> mm. And of course, there are many cultures that share that trait in many families, many regions in America. Uh, you know, I know, Grant, you've talked about Iowa nice, mm-hmm. reminded me of that, you know, people don't really say what they mean. Uh, and then you have places like New York, of course, where people are known for their directness and saying exactly what they mean a little too much. Um, and, you know, then we have that in California, too. You know, people kind of people I do think people say what they mean more here than in the Midwest. Um, but that said, when people don't say what they mean, there's so much interesting stuff to piece together. And when a skilled writer is offering up a story or collection like these, then you're kind of decoding. And in the title story, Thank You, Mr. Nixon, the protagonist again and again talks about what they're not supposed to say and what they're not supposed to know. Uh, And in the story, the protagonist is a little girl who was there when Nixon visited in 72, and she's narrating from heaven. And I just wanted to read this little piece because I think from a craft standpoint, our listeners will find this very interesting. Gish writes, those of us students who were supposed to be background students in the park were told what to understand. What if the American journalists asked things like, do you have enough to eat and drink? Or do you like America? Our teacher asked us. Do you understand them? Of course, that was a stupid question because anyone who answered yes would not have been picked to be a background student to begin with, but no one said it was stupid. (laughs) So that kind of thing, you know, I found myself so delighted to listen um, because I listened to the audio as many people know, I've been doing that in order to get through the books that we, uh, the so many books that we have on the show. Um, But I just love to listen to the way that Gish uh, crafts these sentences and to show us what this little girl knew and understood and how she knew how stage managed Nixon's visit was. And she imagines, you know, he didn't know or how could he not have known? And it's just a lot of good speculation in there. And uh, really, the entire collection is a great study in tensions of all sorts. Navigating the world of the unsaid and how things are unsaid might be the one great gift that fiction can give us that other forms of writing can't. 
So I can't wait to explore this and more with guest Jen after this very short break. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back, everyone. We're so thrilled to have Gish Jen with us today. Gish is the author of one previous book of stories, five novels, and two works of nonfiction. Her honors include fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and the Fulbright Foundation, as well as the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction and the Mildred and Harold Strauss Living Award from the Academy of Arts and Letters. Her stories have appeared in the Best American Short Stories five times, including Best American Short Stories of the Century. She's also delivered the William E. Massey Senior Lectures in American Studies at Harvard University. She and her husband split their time between Cambridge and Vermont. Welcome, Gish. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Oh my gosh, it's wonderful to have you. And I absolutely just love this new collection. Uh, I want to launch in by asking you about the tensions that are central to this new book. And really, there are a lot of them. But the central one, as far as I understand it, tell me if you agree, is the generational tensions. And Maybe that's, uh, you know, because the generational tensions spawn all the other tensions. But I wanted to just ask you about this because you're a child of immigrants. And this book is really teed up for this topic since it spans 50 years and also, you know, is with a couple different families in the mix. So what are you looking for, you know, when you're writing generational tensions? And, um, you know, what do you want the reader to see? Well, I have to say that now that you brought it up, I can see that there is a lot of generational tension. Um, but I do not sit down to represent generational tension, um, and I don't have any point that I'm trying to make with the generational tension. Um, that said, I, of course, have grown up with a lot of generational tension. Now, generational tension is something that everyone experiences, but it is especially acute if one generation has come from one culture and there's a younger generation growing up in a very, very different culture. So I guess it's to say that when I think about my book, I think more about cultural difference maybe than I think about generational difference. Um, but those things actually, as you point out, are actually coincident. Well, maybe I can draw upon that then a little bit more because I what we were hoping to explore today is really about the tension that exists in, in this collection and other collections that you've written. And so, it, you know, if it's not intentionally generational tensions, I feel like these short stories really do pull at various threads. And so there's cultural, there's political, you know, there's, you sit there and you just kind of feel these teeming feelings between different people who are, you know, living in China, living in the United States, living in Hong Kong, and then who have very different mindsets. So is is, is it just natural then because of your lived experience? Or are you trying to dig into the heart of more tension for the sake of the story? It arises very naturally out of my lived experience. Um, but also, of course, I, I am, I'm a fiction writer and, um, you know, and so if, if you're asking whether I am deliberately mining something, which is from my life, I would say yes. So I would say both that it arises naturally and also that, you know, as a writer that I'm, I'm mining it. And, um, and that's to say that, um, you know, we have many 
many, many, many tensions with which we live, but I'm always trying to uh, focus maybe on the tensions that seem to me maybe the most unexamined, um, you know, so, you know, what seems to me to be kind of fresh territory. And, um, you know, so I, I, I mean, I guess I've had the same, you know, the same difficulties with, you know, teaching a younger person how to drive, for instance, as anybody else. Um, but I'm, I'm less likely to focus on that because, you know, many people have written about the frustration of teaching younger people to drive and uh, they don't need me to do it. Um, so I, I tend to focus on, you know, things that I think that I am maybe singularly uh, equipped to deal with. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And Gish, I was going to mention that another big aspect of this book is the Chinese diaspora, the leaving for various kinds of lives to America, to Hong Kong, to Italy. And those who leave, uh, you know, obviously sacrifice so much, but then their their children, you know, have a life that's very different, as you mentioned. And there's often an inherent tension there around what is acceptable to do with one's life after such a sacrifice has been made in order for you to, to have, you know, this uh, better life, supposedly. And I, I read that your parents weren't pleased when you became a writer and, and this expectation among immigrant parents of what their children should do, can and often does end up fracturing families. So I was wondering if you could speak to that experience of that tension in your own writing journey. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, you know, so my parents were immigrants from um, mainland China. Um, they were involuntary immigrants. So, you know, they just really ended up here. They did not come here for a better life. They, you know, there was a war, there was revolution, and they just, this is where they landed. And I think like many immigrants, what they mostly wanted to do was to resurrect their old life only here, only to discover very quickly that that was not really possible. And um, in the middle of all that, you know, comes this daughter. Um, so, you know, it, I will say that my parents had a, a lot of trauma. You know, there's a big war. You know, you can only imagine if you journeyed to China for some reason and then sort of got stuck there and then suddenly this is your life. You know, you would, you know, you would find it very, very difficult. And they found it very, very difficult. And by the time they had me and I had gone to an Ivy League school and so on, you know, they just wanted for me to do something which was safe, secure, and, you know, from their point of view, I guess, understandable. And, um, you know, becoming a writer was none of those things. So um, we ha we did have a lot of conflict about that. And I would say that, you know, that my experience as a, you know, a member of the Chinese diaspora is very common. I mean, because, you know, the number of things that our parents understood was very, very small. They come from a culture where scarcity governs everything. So, you know, you don't want people to do things that are risky. Uh, you know, everything is about, you know, can you do something that's going to help stabilize, you know, a family um, in a society where there are no safety nets and, you know, and, um, you know, to be at the bottom of society is really a terrible thing. Um, there was, there's not much of a middle class. And, um, you know, their, their whole orientation is completely different than the orientation of people here, where there's a very large middle class and there's a big social safety net. And there are lots of different things that you can do and, and have a reasonable life. And that's something that's really hard for them to understand. Um, so, um, and, the, and the, all their instincts are just like, oh no, you know, <laughs> please just don't do anything that's going to make trouble for us or make trouble for the family or just make things harder. And of course, to become a writer, you know, it's hard to be a writer is hard for me, but it's also hard for everyone around the writer. You know, it's hard for my family, even now. You know, it's hard to have somebody in this profession. And so in that way, they were kind of right, you know, that by deciding to be a writer, I was making things harder for everybody around me.
at the same time, you know, I'm growing up in this culture where, you know, the messages are, you know, be who you authentically are, you know, you know, if you have something in you, especially an artistic impulse, you know, the, the messages to please realize that. And um, so I'm hearing all of those voices and they, they run very, very counter to everything that my parents understand. Thanks for unpacking that. It's uh, interesting because obviously as a daughter of immigrants, you always have one foot in each culture. And one of the things that I like about the book is the critique of both countries, you know, of the United States and China. And I watched a bunch of other interviews in preparation for today. And there was one place where you were talking about the leadership in both countries being in need of an overhaul, which I totally agree with, of course. (laughs) And I loved what you said about both cultures thinking that the other is unfree. And I wondered if you could share a little bit more about that concept and how that shows up in Thank You, Mr. Nixon, the new collection. Yeah. um, So obviously in this culture, because we are very focused on, you know, this, this self that we believe in, we believe that we have selves and that, you know, expression of those selves is, you know, kind of of paramount importance. So therefore, things like free speech are very, very important to us, right? So it's very important that we can say, you know, Biden sucks and you know, and nobody cares, right? Um, you know, it, that's very important to us. And so and when we look at them, we think, you know, it's very unfree over there. You know, they, they don't get to say these things. And, and, um, and we feel that that's a kind of prison. On the other hand, you know, within our families, we are actually quite careful, you know. So if you have a daughter who is overweight, you cannot say to her, you know, go on a diet, you know, or, you know, you can say that, you know, there are many, many, many things that you can't say. And, you know, that's that's part of our whole system and we're protecting their self-esteem and, you know, there's all these things. But anyway, you know, the, the family is a, is not a place where you can just let loose and say whatever you want. In China, you know, publicly, you can't say anything, but within a family, you can say whatever you say. You know, this business of, you know, you know, my mother telling a daughter, like, you know, you look terrible in that outfit. You know, you should get rid of it, you know, or, you know, you, you know, you have, you know, you, you really need to lose 20 pounds at least, you know, you know, in China, people would not think twice about saying something like that, you know, and, you know, and, um, and so they feel that, you know, what is this American place where even within your family, you can't say anything, which is how they see it. Um, and so they see, they think we're we're very unfree, and then also within our political discourse, you know, they think we're very bites wall, you know, very politically correct. There are all these things you cannot say, and I would say, you know, that's correct, especially with cancel culture now. That you know, there are many things that we can't say. So we have freedom of speech, meaning the government can't shut us down, but our mores are such that there are many things that we can't say. And, and where they're like the opposite, <laughs> the government, the government shuts all kinds of things down, but their mores are much looser. Hmm, that's fascinating. And it's making me think one of the words I kept reading when reading about your work was interdependent. And these stories in your new book are interdependent and the Chinese are interdependent. And in one interview on LitHub, you talked about how becoming a novelist was basically the most individualist thing you can be. And yet there is an interdependent part that persists in that as well, as you mentioned earlier. And so I was wondering if you can speak to interdependence, which I see as an orientation, perhaps an ingrained trait, maybe an inheritance as it plays out in your life and your exploration of your characters' lives on the page. Yeah, you know, interdependence is, is a tricky term, 
And um, I use it um, instead of using collectivistic, which is even worse. You know, it's just so laden. And people think they know what it means when actually they don't know what it means. Um, interdependent right now has kind of two meanings. And uh, one meaning is, you know, the kind of popular meaning, like, you know, like the whole world is interdependent and, you know, and and um, and uh, m- meaning that we are engaged in, you know, trade with other countries, for example, and, and that, um, you know, our rivers, you know, we are dependent on our waterways and our waterways are depending on us and, you know, this kind of, these kinds of ideas um, that, you know, and that's one use of interdependent. But there is another use, a sort of more, um, a more technical use, you know, the use of the, you know, interdependent as it's used by psychologists. And that is the, it's, it's an orientation where the major boundary, if you think about the self and community, the major boundary is not around the self the way that it is in more individualistic societies. The major boundary is around some group unit, for instance, the family and society. And the fact that 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 means that you fundamentally see yourself as part of a larger entity. Now, that entity is traditionally the family, but it can also be a tradition, you know, so anybody who sees themselves as inheriting a tradition and passing on a tradition and someone and someone who sees themselves as belonging to the tradition, the tradition is more important than you are. So you are very oriented toward words like duty, you know, and responsibility. That is a more interdependent orientation. And um, people who come from older societies, it's not just the Far East, but it's, you know, very pronounced in China, um, but also Eastern Europe, you know, many, many other parts of the world are oriented in an interdependent way, meaning that it's not that the self is passive. That's kind of the American idea about it, but that's wrong. It's not that the self is passive, but the self is in service to something else and to a greater, a greater good. And, um, and these two systems are, are very much intention. They are intention in me. Um, I, I have both. I have both voices. I personally think that to be a hybrid person is that it's very fertile. It's very fertile, you know, from a creative point of view and, and every other point of view, I think. Um, so I think that the idea that these things are in opposition is in itself kind of problematic. But in any case, um, but you were correct that, you know, when I was talking about, you know, what it means to be a writer for someone like me, um, the whole idea that I think of myself as taking away from family resources in order to do this thing, um, you can sort of see that the from a Western point of view, well, you, it's your life and you have a right to do with it whatever you will like. But, and I will say that that kind of just that word right, it's your right is a very individualistic orientation the orientation toward rights. Whereas, you know, another part, you can hear the tension that I have a right to become a writer, but I have a duty to carry on, you know, certain traditions within my family and and to um, to do something that will be stabilizing of the family. Do you, can you hear the two things in, in tension? And um, so one I would say is, is the more individualistic voice, which is, you know, I have a right. Um, my freedom is, it really matters. Um, the other is actually your freedom doesn't matter so much and your meaningful contribution towards something greater than you is actually 
you know, much more important. If you think about that moment in Casablanca, I don't know if you remember that movie where, you know, I mean, the troubles of you know, a couple of people like us just don't mount to a hill of beans in this bigger world, you know, um, you know, that kind of thinking that, you know, you can, that you can hear the interdependent mer- um, message, which is very much about self-sacrifice. Obviously, you know, there's a gender aspect to this too, which is that, you know, as a woman, you know, I'm very leery of messages around self-sacrifice since, you know, women are asked to be self-sacrificing, you know, endlessly self-sacrificing in kind of an angelic way. Um, But it is also true that if you ask me, you know, what makes me cry, you know, acts of self-sacrifice get me every time. And I, I find it a very beautiful and a very moving thing. So, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of on the fence between these two systems. Thank you so much, Gish. I was thinking uh, probably our listeners can relate to that tension so much because as you unpacked it, I was just nodding along and thinking like, yeah, a lot of us exist in that space, you know, regardless of our heritages. Uh, and, and your heritage, as we've been talking about, is this space of being the daughter of immigrants. And thank you, Mr. Nixon is set up to cover a 50-year period uh, since last year when you published the book was the golden anniversary of Richard Nixon's 72 visit to China. So I personally don't know enough to declare it to be true uh, that China has changed more than the United States has in these 50 years, but it seems to be the case. So I'm curious, what are what's like one or two of the most consequential changes in China over this half century that you explored in your fiction? Yeah, so I would say that China has changed more more than the United States in the last 50 years. Um, for one thing, and, and millions and millions and millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And so whatever you think about authoritarianism, um, the present government, uh, you know, all of it, I don't think anyone can take it away from the present government that they have completely transformed the lives of, I mean, I mean, and I do million, I mean, millions and millions and millions of people. So that's been huge. Another thing, of course, is that, um, is they have become a, you know, a capitalist society and, you know, a capitalist society is capitalism with Chinese characteristics, you know, but that, that is a, that is a huge change. And so, you know, I mean, so we've gone from, we went from a China that was behind a bamboo curtain where we barely had any kind of exchange with them, you know, and and where the society was, you know, was, was extremely third world Um, to a society, you know, in 50 years, they've gone from that to a country where, you know, I, I, you know, they have that, you know, the idea that they could become the, you know, the number one country in the world is not far fetched. I mean, I, I don't think that they will. Um, but the fact of the matter is they're, you know, they're number one, they're number two, you know, um, giving us a one for our money. And, um, and the whole idea that a country that was just kind of sitting there <laughs> in really quite, in quite an undeveloped fashion, you know, going from that position to the position they're in now in 50 years. I mean, that is just a breathtaking change. Well, in closing, Gish, you've said that Detective Dog is perhaps the best story you've ever written, which is <laughs> really saying a lot since so many of your stories are so enchanting and powerful and poignant. And I, I love the story. You know, the best part, of course, is it's surprise unfolding. But I'm curious as a writer, what is that like for you to have written something that you feel demonstrates the pinnacle of success for a short story? You know, I hear that praise and, and I think maybe it means it will be a benchmark for all future stories, but maybe, you know, you're more enlightened than that and it's just something to celebrate. So tell us about that. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's more like um, 
I'm just happy I did it. You know, and I, I don't think that I don't think in terms of, well, can I do that again? Or um, I don't think, uh, you know, I, it's not like, yeah, I, well, I don't know, if, you must be a writer if you're doing this. Yeah. Um, it's just not like that. You you just don't know what's going to happen. And so, and I, and I don't think it's, it's hard enough. You don't have to saddle yourself with any additional <laughs> pressure. So, um, so I, I don't think that way. Um, it's, it's more like it's, it's kind of miraculous to me. And I look at it and I think, oh my God, you know, I sitting down, I would never have expected that I had that in me. And, um, and I'm, I'm just thrilled. And, um, so, you know, maybe, you know, in, in another year, it, it will not have the luster it has for me or for others that it seems to have right now, but I'm certainly enjoying this moment. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, may I be so lucky again, we'll see. It's a really wonderful story, and, and so is the entire collection, Gish. So thank you, and thanks for being on Right Minded. Thank you so much, Gish. My pleasure. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, Grant, today's trend is about how stories and essays often get reused, recycled, republished, and repackaged. And this idea came to me because a few weeks ago, I was teaching a class about publishing. And during the Q&A, someone asked if publishers frown upon writers trying to get pieces of their projects published ahead of time. Uh, So what they were asking about was like, can they publish a short story that will be part of a later collection? Or could you get a chapter from your memoir published that will later be part of your book? And this is just so much part of how book publishing operates. The fact that that is totally okay, uh, that it's less a trend than a known thing. But I felt given that we have Gish on the show today, and since she's done this, we should notify folks that yes, 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 you should absolutely try to get your work published in advance and that there is literally no downside. I have definitely heard this a lot from aspiring authors over the years, and I've entertained this question myself, especially when it comes to nonfiction. And of course, it makes sense that you'd think that publishers wouldn't want you to do this, that intuitively it would seem that getting your work published on other outlets prior to the book's publication would somehow, you know, tip your hand or make the book feel like part of it is already out in the world, so it's less urgent. But but publishers see you building an audience, not shrinking readership, right, Brooke? Yeah, exactly. Publishers know that just because some eyes were on a piece, uh, I I mentioned Amaryllis was previously published. And now that I'm looking at my notes, it was actually 2006, not 2014. And it was in the Paris Review. um, And that was a while ago, you know, so she clearly decided to wrap it into this project. And so I'm just thinking of all the people who had not read the Paris Review piece back then, including myself. Uh, And also getting published proves your mettle. If 
those pieces are well received and readers show great enthusiasm for what a writer has written, then that is evidence to the publisher that there's an appetite for more of the same. So that's what that's about. Um, Publishers are not so eager about being first. Like to your point, that's kind of counterintuitive. They're actually much more eager to publish something that is known to work. And so these publishing bylines are like little test bubbles out in the world. Yeah, and in Gish's new collection, I thought it was was really interesting that she brings back a previously published piece, Duncan in China, uh, not just from a, a literary journal, but from her previous collection, Who's Irish, which was published in 1999. And I have to say, I did this with a couple of pieces in my last story collection, All the Comfort Sin Can Provide, and I, I kind of wondered if I was breaking the rules, but um, <laughs> I did it for certain reasons. Um, and, I, and I love that she's circling these characters and resurfacing them and bringing them back to further explore. But in addition to resuscitation, which is something writers can do with their work and with their characters, there's also repackaging, as you mentioned. And this is another extension of this trend, which is that stories and essays can be republished. So I'm curious if you have anything to add to to that in publishing, Brooke. Yeah. So again, Gish is a great guest for driving this home because that story I mentioned, Detective Dog, in which she talks about in the interview as well, uh, was chosen to be included in the Best American Short Stories of 2022, which was published at the end of last year as an anthology. So that's what it means to be repackaged. It gets new life in another collection of stories. Uh, And this is a way to get more eyes on that story. And the assumption will be that people who love the story in the Best American collection will be uh, hopefully compelled to buy Thank You, Mr. Nixon. So there's a way in which publishing sees the perpetuation of stories being published elsewhere as a driver of sales. That actually does make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with all the many things in publishing that make no sense, that actually makes sense. Uh, and you'll see many stories and essays and excerpts from books published in all sorts of publications. And lots of times those publications are also paying good money for serial rights. And so it's another way for authors to make money as well, which is important and for publishers to make money. Uh, so, but all this stuff that we're talking about right now, that repackaging is post publication as opposed to pre publication. Yeah. So the point is, goes both ways. Publishers are happy for authors to pre-publish work, and publishers are happy for published works to be serialized and repackaged. Here's the light bulb moment. The idea being, the more readers on a given work, the better. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So don't fear writers. In fact, get your work out into the world. Uh, It's a great thing to do to build your author platform and to start to build an audience. And if you think that you can't do this, I assure you, you can. Uh, If you've been wondering if you should try to place some smaller pieces, I want to say yes, do it. Uh, It's not the easiest thing in the world to do, though, because it's competitive, but the efforts really matter. And if you manage to get published, those bylines also make you more desirable in the publisher's eyes once you're ready to get out there and sell your next book. I know you know that to be true, Grant. Yeah, good point. I was exactly in this position with my current book, The Art of Brevity. I published one chapter with LitHub with the specific goal that I wanted to show publishers that the topic had readership when I submitted the book proposal for publication. So I actually got the web metrics from the publisher to report or from the lit hub to report to publishers and and then i save some chapters to excerpt now in order to engage readers in the topic so they'll they'll hopefully buy the book so perhaps the lesson of this book trend is never turn down a potential reader we'll never turn you down at right minded we're here every week of the year to help you develop that creative mindset to write your story your way so please spread the word and let's keep building a community of storytellers and world changers we'll see you next week <laughs>